legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat. My guest today is Bruce Schofield, who joins us to discuss his book, The Nature of Astrology, History, Philosophy, and the Science of Self-Organizing Systems. Our ancient ancestors recorded the rhythms of the sun, moon, planets, and stars, correlating these rhythms with weather, plant growth, and animal and human behaviors. From these early geocosmic recordings came calendars, astronomy, and astrology. While astrology is now mostly viewed as subjective fortune-telling, Schofield argues that astrology is not only a practice, but also a science, specifically a form of system science, a set of techniques for mapping and analyzing self-organizing systems, providing clear evidence that our solar system neighbors profoundly affect and shape life on our planet. The author shares modern biological and climate studies on the effects of Earth's rotation, the sun, the moon, and the rhythms of light, gravity, magnetism, and solar radiation on terrestrial processes. He explores the early practice of astrometeorology, a method of weather forecasting used from ancient times into the Renaissance revealing the links between the solar system, weather, and climate over large spans of time. He shares his own studies on the correlations between Saturn's position and terrestrial weather, as well as presenting a wealth of evidence on astrological effects and the theories and mechanics behind them. Presenting a broad look at how the cosmic environment shapes nature, Schofield shows how the practice and natural science of astrology can expand its applications in modern society, helping us understand ourselves and our place in the universe. Hello and welcome, Bruce, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Bruce, today we're going to be talking about your new book. It's entitled The Nature of Astrology, History, Philosophy, and the Science of Self-Organizing Systems. Before we dive into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Okay, I've... um... I've been involved in astrology since, I guess, the uh, the late 1960s. And at the same time, I've had a, um, an interest in science. Uh, when I was young, I was interested in geology and astronomy. And I um, had these circumstances where I noticed I was meeting and having relationships with people born on the same day over and over again. And this brought me into astrology. And so I spent a lot of my early life trying to reconcile those two points of view. But I did manage to make a living at astrology for about 40, 45 years, I guess. And towards the end of that, I um, managed to get a PhD in geosciences at the University of Massachusetts and taught there for about 15 years. And um, I'm retired now. So the book is basically a product of my entire life in both science and, and astrology, which some people find very uh, confusing and 
um, counterintuitive. Well, that really cuts to the heart of, um, you know, what we're going to be talking about. Some people saying astrology, of course, is like um, profoundly unscientific. Um, but of course, it wasn't always that way. Astrology, astronomy, it was really, and speaking as a just a, an interested amateur here, um, t- to me, it seems in my reading of it, there was a time when it really was kind of one thing, you know, different aspects of one study of the, you know, the of the heavens and the movements of these and correlations, uh, you know, with events on Earth, whether that be, as you say, in the geosciences or in, you know, human events and uh, these correspondences being mapped over time, telling us that something was going on. I have to say that by coincidence or not, <laughs> I had someone ask recently if I could recommend any books on astrology, uh, sort of ones that were going to, you know, well, actually take the uh, the route that yours does. And it was just, again, it just so happened to have just finished reading yours. So the, the book is outstanding, if you don't mind me saying so. Um, and it really is going to be for people who are skeptical, I would say, about astrology, but perhaps interested enough. I think this is the book they need to read. So I recommended your book. And that's up there with Richard Tarnas, uh, Cosmos and Psyche, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, he's um, also had a, has a background in academics as well. Yeah, exactly. So perhaps we could say something about that, how astrology uh, and astronomy, you know, the, the commonalities between the two, the how that has changed over time to the point where I think actually we're, I, I hope that we're moving into a new era of um you know, of appreciation for astrology and what it can, what it can, what it can tell us, what it can give us, what, you know, what we can listen to, you know, the voices of these like heavenly bodies rather than just observe their movements. But certainly we could say that um, with the the scientific revolution and this rise of materialism and, and rationalism and, you know, reductionism in science, that astrology became sidelined. So maybe we could just do a sort of a potted potted history of that how the appreciation for or the skepticism about astrology has changed over the centuries yeah i think early early on very early on like in ancient mesopotamia uh astrology astronomy and uh calendar science and navigation were all pretty much linked together uh there wasn't much of a distinction but by the time of the uh hellenistic period which you know began shortly after uh, Alexander's conquests, uh, you began to see astrology moving into uh, Greek territory and the Greeks applying geometry to it and building it into a a more uh, tightly organized system. And so by about 150 AD, you have Ptolemy, who is considered the greatest uh, scientist of the ancient world, being very clear about the distinction between astronomy and astrology. Uh, he wrote a, a massive book on astronomy, and he um, also wrote a book on astrology, which uh, a lot of people consider to be the, the classic founding work, although there are others as well. So the distinction was there. And uh, I think for the next uh, 1,500 years or so, People that did mathematics, people that did astronomy, and people that did astrology were often the same person, or they, or they maybe uh, favored one over the other, but there wasn't much of a distinction. And a lot of work was put into the uh, mathematics of calculating the chart. 
And out of that work, we got trigonometry. But trigonometry was pretty much done by uh, the 17th century. And that's about the same time as uh, the scientific revolution when there was a shift from science as being basically logic and close observation to science being experiment and mathematical modeling, uh, which is reductionist in its nature. In order to do an experiment, you have to take things out of context and put them in a study situation. So two things were happening on the intellectual level around the 17th century that affected astrology. Again, one was the fact that there wasn't so much of a demand for the mathematics anymore and uh, observations were better. The telescope had been invented. Um, And the... um, change in the way science was done. And one of the problems astrology had was it was not reducible as other subjects were. You know, you could take in physics, for example, you can roll a ball down a ramp or drop a stone and you can measure that and you can apply uh, numbers to it, units. And then with the units, you can mathematically model it, come up with a formula. But it was very difficult to do with astrology. It was impossible to do, really. And uh, some attempts were made. There was a, um, a teacher named John Goad, who in the 17th century did a, a very complex and lengthy uh, analysis and study of the correlations between astrological aspects, planetary aspects, and weather. He did that in London. And it was a well-respected work. People from the Royal Society respected it, but it couldn't go anywhere because he couldn't model it with mathematics. And not only that, his weather records weren't that good because this was really before the the time of thermometers and barometers and and so on. So the the, uh, barometer had been invented, but it was hard to get your hands on one. And I think he did get his hands on one towards the end of his study. But in other words, without instrumentation and without mathematics, he really couldn't fit into the trend at the time. Now, if this had happened a few centuries later, there would have been statistics and that would have been, you could have done something with it, which is how astrology is tested today. Uh, uh, Statistics are the way. But that um, on the scientific intellectual level is what happened to astrology. But there are other social uh, trends, historical trends that really pushed astrology from center stage uh, off into the closet. I mean, when I first encountered astrology, it was, uh, you won't be surprised to hear this, uh, like in the 1980s when I was a teenager, um, it was in the the tabloid newspaper and it was a little column. Uh, in fact, the, the astrologer that I, well, I put astrologer in air quotes because I don't really know how deep her knowledge was, but uh, there was an astrologer in one of the national newspapers in the UK, Mystic Meg, and she recently died actually, because her obituary was all of the news. And she would do the little horoscopes, you know, that would appear you know, only about you know less than 100 words each. Yeah. And when I later came to be very interested in astronomy through watching, again, the longest running TV show on UK television, The, the Sky at Night, hosted for many decades by Sir Patrick Moore, I became interested in astronomy. And then I started that, but I started to read about astrology in some of the astronomy books. So I just wondered at the time, how did what you're referring to, um, you know, those, those ancient origins become boiled down to something as throwaway 
as you know you will meet a tall handsome stranger or whatever in the horoscope because there must have been serious work going on there must have been like an, almost like an astrological underground to keep you know the discipline to keep the study going uh, or maybe it didn't move forward for a long time i don't know again that's this is something i'm kind of working backward now to try and figure out well it didn't go anywhere for a long time what happened was in the 17th century it dropped out of you know cutting edge science and uh, intellectual life or you know at least parts of it were involved there 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 it's a complex history but anyway it dropped out and went down to the middle class and the lower classes stayed alive more in England than anywhere else in Europe. And it was only uh, at the end of the 19th century that it started revising itself, reviving itself. And um, that has continued, you know, pretty steadily since then. Uh, one, one comment, though, I, I, this is, I think, important. I want to clarify it. People use the term horoscope when they see uh, a list of uh, predictions in a newspaper column or a magazine and it's it's labeled that way but that's so incorrect horoscope is a greek word which means view of the hour or hour marker and it refers to the ascendant which is also known as the rising sign so those little blurbs are not horoscopes but they're called horoscopes i just want to clear that up pass that out there to anybody who's interested if if you look at a um, a chart of the positions of the planets for a specific time and place. It's not really called a horoscope, although a lot of people do. It should be called a, an astrological chart or a birth, birth chart if it's a chart of a person. Of course, and this is this is explained in detail in your book. I simply used the word horoscope, of course, because that's what yeah. we re- referred to those at the time, albeit incorrectly. Talking about coming at it from an astronomical point of view, uh, many people seem quite willing to accept or are very you know, at ease with, even if they, they haven't done any study of it, the idea, for example, that the moon has effects on um, systems on the Earth, you know, the tides being the best known, perhaps, and don't have any problem accepting that, and that the sun has an effect uh, on well, all the bodies throughout the solar system, of course, but we notice it here on Earth, but they still very resistant to any of the ideas, for example, that they might uh, encounter in your book. And I think that's because they assume that all the effects have to be like purely kind of kinetic. They they understand Mm -hmm. that a planetary body can collide with the Earth, for example, maybe like the event that um, the dinosaurs were already in decline uh, when when that uh, extinction event occurred. But they can accept that 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 sort of thing can happen. Or you can have something like the Carrington events, you know, with the electromagnetic pulse yep. um, or the event over Tunguska, things like that. But it's all purely mm. kinetic as they're seeing it. But that's why they struggle, because they think that's the only way any of this can have an effect on, on systems on the Earth at, at whatever scale. Yeah. Well, the sun and moon certainly have plenty of effects, and some of the effects are pretty subtle. You know, you can have um, a very small influence or force turn a whole system upside down if it comes at the right time. Uh, system here is the operating word because one of the arguments I make in the book is that there's a class of phenomena called systems, or generally called systems, self-organizing systems, things like a cell, uh, you know, a, an organ, a uh, a a body uh, and that these systems have emergent properties like uh, 
the an emergent property of the brain is the mind. And out of that being shaped by behaviors and habits and memories and whatnot uh, emerges a personality. And then you have personalities in communication with each other and you have a network of some sort of, of information going back and forth. And that network has a kind of, it's an emergent property coming from many different individuals and something like the stock market could be described as a self-organizing system as well. So these self-organizing systems turn out to be very sensitive to small influences. So the, the first point really is that we don't need to have a, a massive kinetic event to have effects on systems on the earth. And there are plenty of examples that are, you know, treated as normal by scientists uh, where something like small amounts of solar radiation can tip the balance in the climate system one way or the other or in weather, or in a, um, a person's state of mind. You know, don't always need a big force. Well, you mentioned state of mind, and that's, you know, one of the, you're getting into or touching upon one of the areas in all of this that's of most interest to me, and that is in our, in, in, in biological systems, uh, and in our case, of course, in, in human beings, uh, you write about the effects on, on the biosphere, you know, that fits in with your um, scientific background. Then there's this thing called the new sphere, which right. perhaps we can say a word about. And then the the ethosphere, if I'm, if I'm mm. uh, pronouncing that correctly. And that's where it starts to get incredibly interesting for me, because I remember reading in some, it, it wasn't the 14 times, it would have been one of these strange and uh, startling type magazine things, again, back uh, when I was a teenager, about sunspots and their association with strange phenomena and 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 human events and um there's no reason to think especially when you we were talking about systems that whatever scale you're looking at as you say down to cellular or you know atomic why interconnection wouldn't um wouldn't be a factor and well i guess quantum science is telling us something about this at, at the, the largest scale right you know from the smallest scale to the largest scale and why the movement of planetary bodies around the or any of them around the solar system wouldn't kind of act a little bit like you know pinballs or billiard balls you know because something doesn't have to come into contact with something else to have an effect on it not only in physical contact yeah with with things like gravity and electromagnetic you know forces that's obvious you know you don't need to touch anything these things can can tip off conditions i, I was going to inject this uh this is actually in response to your previous comment it's it's pretty much known that the sun and moon do have a strong effect on life and the biosphere and, and weather and the climate system. Nobody's really arguing about that. The, the arguments are in the details. And I spend a couple chapters on that in the book. So you, if you're of a scientific mind, you will read the first two chapters and say, well, this is really interesting. Yeah, these things are going on. I knew some of it, but I may, may not have known all of it because I bring in a lot of information that's not that well known. You know, things like how bacteria can sense the Earth's magnetic field and use it for navigation. But when you get to the other planets, that's where trouble begins because people will say okay sun and moon they're large bodies or at least the moon is close and the sun is a very large body and they do have gravitational influences and the sun has uh, 
the solar wind blowing on us. So that makes a lot of sense. But it's the other planets. How could they possibly affect us? So what I did for my PhD thesis was take weather data, daily weather data, uh, long time series from different parts of the world, many of them, and check to see if there was any correlation between temperatures and the planet Saturn. I picked Saturn largely because that was suggested by Johannes Kepler in one of his books on astrology. He put that out there, Sun-Saturn angular relationships, or specifically Sun-Saturn syzygies. That that is, Saturn and the Sun are on one or the other side of the Earth in a straight line, correlate with weather changes, uh, cold weather changes. And other astrologers said that, in fact, that was a kind of a universal notion that goes back 2000 years. Astrologers agree that Saturn's associated with cold weather. So I took all these weather data sets and analyzed them in ways that would cancel out any kind of seasonal effects. And I got some interesting results showing that there was a consistent correlation with a drop in temperatures just as the syzygy was forming and then it went back up again. And it's stronger in some parts of the world than others. And that makes sense because climate or weather rather is not the same everywhere. Depends on the location. I happen to live in New England and we have, uh, I don't live near the ocean. I live into New England and uh, we're affected by these large cold air masses that come down from Canada. So where I live would be considered continental. But if you live right on the, um, or near the ocean, you have uh, a very different kind of weather situation. That's, uh, you know, it's made, it's more temperate because of the uh, capacity of the ocean to hold heat, stabilize things. So you're going to get different results in different places, but I got enough results in enough different places to show that this was not a fluke. My PhD committee was a little surprised by it, but the work I did was solid. And I do present that in the book, some of it. I had a, a paper published on it, a peer-reviewed paper. And uh, that's, to my knowledge, the first time somebody has actually done that, shown a um, a clear correlation between Saturn and cold. There were a couple other studies that worked with Mars, um, uh, one from the Netherlands. Um, I don't recall the details offhand, but it's very rare to find people investigate this sort, uh, investigating this sort of thing, correlations with weather and planets. And, and it, the mm. truth is, is Saturn's gravitational influence on Earth is four orders of magnitude less than that of the sun. Now, that's a calculation based on the mass of Saturn and the mass of the Earth's atmosphere. But I found a correlation between the two, a significant correlation. Well, what are we going to do with that? Uh, well, what are we going to do with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's more work to be done. I, I, you know, I'm tired and I don't have all that much energy left these days. But I did the same study for Jupiter. You would think that Jupiter, a bigger mass than Saturn and closer, would produce the same effect, but it doesn't. What so, it actually does is it produces a peak in precipitation. Go figure. So where we're going, I mean, this is like, okay, so we're observing these effects or this correlation uh, with weather conditions 
what we've really got, I think, you know, in the observable universe, I think it's just one massive system. Uh, that's how it, it, it makes sense to me anyway, that although effects, in, you know, in distant parts of it may not necessarily register it in a, a meaningful way or in, a, in, a, in a, a way that can be observed or measured or quantified. For example, we have taking it beyond the weather, for example, then the implication is that the forces, whatever word we want to use, that are affecting something like the weather would affect other systems. I mentioned earlier, biological systems of most interest to us ourselves. And we have we know, you know, the light levels, for example, at different times of the year can affect people differently. I I'm, I'm tend to be pretty happy all year round. Um, whatever the weather is, you know, however, or whatever time it gets dark doesn't bother me. But some people have, I can't remember what it's called, but some people have a real kind of difficult time in the winter with short days and a lot of darkness. Uh, seasonal, of, seasonal affective disorder. Yeah, particularly if they live in, you know, parts of the world, uh, you know, maybe where it's cold and, and wet and it's just generally, you know, inhospitable, then, you know, this is, this is a real thing. Now we have, I've read about, you know, the effect of cosmic rays, for example, on life on Earth and, you know, the Earth and being bombarded constantly with these things and the effect that this has on on the, on the body and on the brain and, as you mentioned, emergent property there for the mind. So, but I think at some point in that kind of line that I've traced there, uh, a, a kind of wall of resistance comes up just saying, oh, well, we can accept that uh, these forces, whatever they, you know, whatever, whatever we're dealing with, are having an effect on the weather systems on Earth or, you know, indeed on other planets. Uh, maybe they affect us um, biologically in some way. But it seems when it comes to questions of not just affecting people's moods, but uh, affecting, well, let's face it, a lot of the events in, um, Human society, well, they're generated by humans. We mm-hmm. we start and stop wars. You know, we we have a renaissance or we have a dark age or whatever. So depending on, literally, depending on how we're feeling at the time and how we see, how we view each other, how we view our, our place on the earth, how we view our place in the solar system or in the wider cosmos, if we see meaning and purpose and all of that, it, that's those are products of the mind. And if that's ultimately affected by these extraterrestrial forces, I'm not talking about aliens, of course, here folks talking about forces off Earth, then why wouldn't this, why wouldn't the study, you know, that you're talking about, why wouldn't this this data, this information, these observations be relevant, ultimately, to human affairs? Well, I think they are. It's just that there's a lot of resistance to it for many reasons. I think the primary one goes way back, and it has to do with any thought of astrology immediately connects with thoughts of fatalism and determinism, and that's uh, anathema to religion, which requires choice uh, because, uh, and it re- requires choice, it requires uh, the power of prayer, you know, the the use of an intermediary priest of some sort. So it's a, it's a deep problem that I think that's uh, embedded in, more so maybe in the Western mind, collective mind than other parts of the world but that's fear of uh you know losing this illusion of free will although you look at the neuroscience today and what you find is that we hardly have free will at all decisions are made and then we think then we think we made the decision 
that, you know, our body is making the decision. Well, I mean, I think that's never more apparent than at the moment in, in our times, you know, with the, where our information age, you know, we're saturated in it coming from all angles, you know, information overload, information is not wisdom necessarily. Oh. And uh, <laughs> so you can, we can see it as plain as day, you know, we don't have to speculate about it, about people's decisions and, you know, that's what, that's what advertising and propaganda is built on. You know, I'm going to buy this, you know, this brand of whatever breakfast cereal, you know, yeah, this is my choice. Well, it's not, you know, <laughs> because you've been programmed to like to desire this. So, yeah, I mean, that that's just a modern iteration of it, really. But it just it really highlights this good parallel, I suppose, to use um, in terms of, you say, free will and making our own decisions. But even with the best, uh, pardon the pun, with the best will in the world, you know, those of us that try to live life as consciously as we can. We understand there are other forces at work, not least other people that may derail us, that may change, you know, make us take a different path or change course or make different decisions or, you know, think that something we thought was a good idea isn't a good idea anymore. You know, no man is an island and all that. You know, we don't live in a bubble. Yeah, it's so we're certainly not isolated. Uh, one, One thing you said a little earlier, um, struck me you, t- you talked about syst- basically uh, an all-encompassing system and then systems within systems right you you pointed in that direction in your thinking oh yeah yeah definitely like like nested you know like russian dolls or whatever yeah and uh, i i think arthur kessler called it a holarchy there were holons which were like a complete system in itself and from the position of a holon it, it subsumes lesser holons and it's subsumed by bigger ones right so it's yeah it's like the russian dolls but um so there is this idea that astrological information coming from the larger solar system percolates through you know downwards we could call it that into these other systems social systems and the biosphere and so on and you get multiple effects coming from the same signal so, for example, um, last month, there was a 90-degree aspect formed between the sun and the planet Uranus, geocentrically. In other words, if you're, you're on Earth, you're looking at the sun, you measure 90 degrees ahead in the zodiac, and there is Uranus. And not only that, but at the halfway point between them, the midpoint, is the vernal equinox or was the vernal equinox. So this was a, a, a symmetry had been established. And there's more to it than that, but that was the main part of it. And that happened in early um, February. And what occurred at that time was the uh, Turkey-Syria earthquake and the American downing of the Chinese spy balloon. And I saw this as a very interesting example of the same signal coming out in two different forms one very physical and the other one a uh, uh, a national you know the the nation being kind of a collective mindset a self-organizing system itself you know these these group um self-organizing systems are interesting because they outlast the people that are in them it's almost so, like a, almost like an egregore or something yeah yeah so so there's a certain there's a national character that persists over time it's a very interesting thing that the formation of uh, a nation is 
an opportunity presents an opportunity for the historian to see the formation of a self-organizing system. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.